MNK Talk YA now presents Ruin of Stars, Part 1 of The Mask of Shadows Duology by Lindsay Miller. To another episode of M&K Talk YA. I'm Katie Bradford. And I'm Marissa Snyder. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast, and this week we started the second book in Lindsay Miller's duology. The duology is called Mask of Shadows, and this book is called Ruin of Stars. And we read up to chapter 27, so if you're following along, don't read any further. <laughs> <laughs> or read or that far before you listen. That far, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There'll be some spoilers. Because some crazy stuff just happened, yeah. Oh my goodness. But should we back up before we get there? Okay. Yeah, let's back up. Okay, so basically, the end of the last book, Sal became Opal, aka Mm -hmm. joined the left hand. Which we thought was going to happen. Yes. No surprises there. Ruby died. That was a bit of a surprise. (laughs) Didn't just die, was murdered by Five and Elisa's dad. Yep. Who we found out is... Yeah, Winter. Winter. Because his name means winter. I still, like, only sort of get how we reveal everyone's identity, but I'm, I'm just rolling with it. Uh-huh. Uh, so Winter and Elise left town and went back to Erland. And I guess since that time, or dur- in the end of the last book or something, basically we found out two more names or one more name? Did we already know the two more names, we right? We knew two more names because we know that um, Gaspar de Wylan, the new villain who was responsible for like the destruction of Nacia, essentially, we know mm-hmm. that he is North Star. So we knew he was a bad guy before, but we didn't know he was North Star, right? Right, because that's okay. like the leader. That's like... Yeah, the one who sent the orders. Yeah. Yes. And then we also know who Caldera is because it opens with Sal, the the second book opens with Sal killing Caldera, and they figure out that Caldera's name is Matin Del Air, Mm -hmm. and they got that information through Elise's childhood friend, Lena, Lena D'Arian. Who is one of the few Erlen nobles who stayed with the queen, at least. Right, right. That was the plan. <laughs> she did and so did um, Nicholas, the queen spy master. Lark. And the other, oh yeah, Lark, another gender fluid character. Yep. I actually thought we'd see more of them than we did. I kind of wish we'd saw more of them too because yeah, I'm just like, I'm very curious about all of these Erland nobles who stayed loyal to the queen and everyone else is kind of under the influence of this Wayland North Star character. So I, I just know like why. You know, why'd they stay loyal? Yeah, I guess Lark makes some sense because Erland is very against, like, anything besides the binary man-woman. There's two, choose one, very old-fashioned view of Mm -hmm. all of that. So it makes sense that Lark would stay with the queen. Yes, true. And I, I guess it makes sense that Nicholas stayed with the queen because we know that he's spying for the queen and is married to one of her mages and stuff, right? Yes. And I guess we also found out that <laughs> Lena didn't really stay Lena as loyal as we thought. <laughs> yeah, that was the big surprise because we learned that there is a... Oh man, I was so scared when they said that there was a female servant who was a spy. And then we learned that it's not a female servant who's the spy, but she recruited all of the spies. Mm-hmm. And then we learned that it's Lena. And I was really nervous because I thought the spy was going to be Maud. Yeah. And then, it, and then it like... And I'm still confused about like half the things going on with Lena. So... I skipped to the end. Sorry. Before we found out that Lena was the traitor. Right. Maud and Demas. Yeah, I was kind of confused by all of their relationship with her. Because I felt like everyone was mad at each other, but I didn't really understand why. So was... Demas and Lena, like, was that like a romantic thing and Maude was jealous or was it something else? I don't think there was anything going on between them. Okay, because Maude and Demas, Maude liked Demas, right? In the last book? Or did I just totally, like, make up a romance? I know he was, like, really, he was not nice to her. Oh, I thought he was nice to her. No, because remember, like, Sal was upset at the way that Demas treated Maude and, and Sal really didn't like him. I know, but I thought, so that's where I, for some reason in the first book, I thought that Maude had a crush on Demas, 
Oh, and he like resisted her advances. Yeah, and I thought that's why oh, Sal got mad. Idea. But I might have totally invented that because I'm not entirely sure where I got that from, to be honest, at this point. Okay. <laughs> but Demas still, well, now Demas is with Lena. But yes. Demas was still back at the house and Maude went with Lena. Yes, and we learned that Demas, I think, was one of the servants who Lena recruited. Yes, and he's actually Nassian. Yes, yes. He's Nassian. And like Sal. Sal's the only other one we know is. Right. And like what a terrible position because I think Sal was like really kind of excited to learn that Demas was Nassian because, you know, here's another person who's from their country and they thought that they were the only survivor. Mm-hmm. And so like here's a good opportunity to kind of like, you know, bond with your countrymen. And then he attacks the queen and then blows Sal up essentially and yep. escapes and... I mean, I feel bad for him because he he says that his mom and his sister uh, were captured during the the um, invasion, and the Erlins found them and said that they'll kill them if if Demas doesn't try and kill the queen. And they like had proof yeah. that they had his mom. But it almost felt like a half-hearted attempt to kill the queen. True, I think in some ways because. If he had stuff to blow things up and he's not a knifesman and there's... Because Emerald was in the room. (laughs) Multiple left-hand people there. It seemed like not the best opportunity to take. I think that he had to prove that he was at least trying to kill Mm -hmm. the queen. But you could tell, like, he's not used to bloodshed. He's not used to fighting. You know, it's not his strong point. And he's squeamish about it. So I think... He, yep. He's caught between this, I need to save my family, and yep. I need to kill the queen, but I really don't want to. Okay, and Maude, at some point, leaves Sal's service to go with Lena because she wants to find her family? Family, yes. Okay, but something weird is going on there. She knows yeah. more than she's saying, yeah. So do you think, at the end, I was very concerned because I didn't like that Maude was with Lena, and... The end is just horrifying when she, mm-hmm. like, Lena essentially is like, how do you want to kill Sal? And at first I was like, oh, okay, Maude is straight up helping Lena. Like, she's on her side. But then she picks drowning as the way to kill Sal. And she knows that Sal can swim. Okay, that was another question I had. Did we know that she knew that Sal could swim? Yes. When did that Because at some point Sal says, Maude knows that I damn well can swim or something like that. Yeah, but I thought that was after Sal had been thrown in the river, which was the... So then I was like, oh, good, Maude wasn't as evil as she just seemed to be, but I I didn't know going into... Like, that wasn't a secret that we knew going into it, did we? Or did we? I think so. I guess we knew with the knot, too, or, you know... The, it was a slip knot that Maude tied or whatever, but... Yeah, I think we knew... I think we knew that going into it, because I think that's the whole reason that Maude picked drowning. So there must have been something that we're not thinking of in the first book or earlier in this book where Maude and Sal talked about Sal being able to swim or something. I, I, I seem to remember that. Okay. I believe it. I just didn't recall myself. So yeah, I also was like, uh, Maude's <laughs> taking this thing a little... Because f- I still didn't want to believe that she was bad, but right. I was like, she is literally plotting how to kill Sal. Oh, and when she says consider this my official resignation like right before she pushes them oh Uh she did a convincing act yes but i also so Maud left sal a note under their pillow Mm -hmm. and i was waiting for a clue in that note and i don't know if there was one was there what did the note say i don't remember when when sal first sees Maud with lena Maud tells them go home go home so i think i think Maud was like trying to warn sal at that point yeah, she, it, it felt like she was saying, I've got this under control, trust me, sort of thing. Yeah. But then Sal found the note after they got back to their room, and it mm-hmm. said, Opal, I believe in you. I'm certain you'll pass out the moment you return, and I won't get a chance to talk to you, but I do worry when you leave. It is nice to have a friend who trusts me, and I do trust you whether you believe it or not. We are kindred souls, I think. Too ambitious to let others in. Perhaps ambition will be our downfall, but I think it will be the start of our success. Regardless, when you wake up and read this, please remember to unlock the door so I can enter. Also, you have terrible taste in jewelry. Please stop offering to buy me some. Your company is enough. My paycheck, of course, is an integral part of your company, yours, Maude. And then I know you'll have to ask Amethyst or Emerald to read this. Please accept having to get out of bed and knock on their door as punishment for tearing holes in the heels of your socks. I darned your socks. You're welcome. So I feel like 
there has to be some kind of secret message in there, but I don't know what it is. I think maybe maybe it was, I think it was a message to reassure Sal that Maude was a friend. You know, when she was like, we're kindred spirits, I trust you, I hope you trust me. Do you think? What was with the, please remember to unlock the door? That's a good question. I don't know what that is. Because Maude had the key, right? Maude was one of the only people who had a key. Yes. But I don't know. So I feel I'm curious if that comes back because I was in between when we saw Maud in Lena's employ the first time and when we saw Maud pushing Sal into the water the second mm-hmm. time or whatever. But Wrath is dead. Oh, yeah. So we reunited with Wrath. He's our family. Things were good. Then things were bad because Wrath felt betrayed. Then things were good again. And then Wrath died. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a very good summary. <laughs> Well, I mean, the whole thing, like, opens with when Sal kills Caldera, they find the ear, the children's ear, and it is carved with what Sal thinks are runes, and then they realize that it's actually Nacian for the word eat. That's what I, I don't understand where that comes into play. But, so the whole... Well, and it seems like, so children are being kidnapped and their ears are being taken, or whatever. By the rangers, yeah. And it seems like they're targeting certain kinds of children type like something based on their appearance or something maybe I'm curious if that has something to do with or I don't know what they're judging it off of but it feels like they're picking certain children and not other children right and Wrath was mad because one of his children went missing Cam who was in his gang Mm -hmm. and you know I mean Sal does have a mission you know um the uh we oh we learned that Deadfall is Caden Caden is the head of the rangers Mm mm-hmm Caden DeBain, and he's the ranger who's, like, leading this mission to kidnap children. And Mm -hmm. Wrath was really upset because he was like, you're so concerned with being Opal, but you need to focus on saving these kids. And Sal was kind of like, yeah, I'm trying to do both, buddy. Like, give me a break. Yeah. And for better or worse, Sal believed, probably for good reason, that Deadfall wasn't going to tell them anything. So even though Wrath thought that they should have kept Deadfall alive. They were like, I I know this isn't worth it, basically. <laughs> yeah. I just I really want to know what Caden is doing with these children and, like, what's with the eat message? I know. Well, and we found out that magic exists in the world still, just not in the country. Right. Do you remember yeah. that reference? Yeah. So that, that's kind of interesting. I wonder if they're doing something with the ears and the children and the rune-like magic... I mean, I wonder if it's if it is going to bring magic back, or if they are trying to recreate the shadows or something. And to what end? You know, like what are they? I mean, it seems like a stupid thing to do since they couldn't control them the first time, right? But they don't really seem like the smartest people either. I mean, they're clever, smart, but they're not smart, smart. Yeah. Okay. We also saw Elise. So Elise is back in the hinterland. Is that what they call it? Hinter. Or, yeah. Hinter with her father. She's trying to basically get information out to help mm-hmm. the queen and co. And <laughs> she is trying to help her people who are being taken advantage of or hunted or whatever is going, all the things that are going on. She's trying to help them as much as she can. Yeah. While still trying to remain the image of like the perfect daughter. So her father doesn't get suspicious. Yeah. Which good luck with that. That sounds super tricky. Yep. Also, okay, so then we found out, so part of Lena betraying yada yada was, Lena was one of the names too. She was Riparian or something? Riparian, yes. But also interesting enough, it was Lena who gave us Caldera. Caldera's name. So I wonder what her play is. So she's the only successful female in Erlen, basically, because of all their thoughts on gender and yada, yada, yada. Oh, right. They hate women and anyone non-binary. And yeah, they're they're pretty much living in the Stone Ages. They basically hate everybody. (laughs) Yeah. They only like power and themselves. They don't, yeah, care about anything, really. And they put labels on everything. Like, everything has to have a label. Ugh, let's never go there. Uh, I'm in. I'm in for not going there. I mean, I'm in on that plan, but yeah. Okay, and then a a prediction you had was that three would become the new Ruby. We have not replaced (laughs) Ruby, but three has come back around and has tried to help us. So we found out three's real identity was Adela. Adela, yeah. Adela. And came with us and now is being locked up or something. So Adela wasn't killed. No. Wrath was killed and Sal was killed in quotes aka survived being killed right and Adela <laughs> was the one who um Sal sees at the 
Carnival of Cheats, and she mm-hmm. reveals the names of four and three. Oh, yeah. And I... This four is and kind two, of right? Four and two, yeah. And I love the part where she was like, so, yeah, we only did this because Mira really wanted to audition. And she was mm-hmm. like, I didn't even want to be Opal, so when it was just between the two of us, I literally <laughs> told them I don't want it, give it to Sal. <laughs> Which is like... <laughs> I love that, too. Hard. I don't know why. I just thought that was so funny. I mean... Sal clearly earned it and deserved it, but the fact that she, like, that, um, what's her name, Mira, like, just flat out told him, like, yeah, just give it to Sal, I'm done. (laughs) Just made me laugh. Yeah, that was funny. I also liked, when she told them Four's name was Theo, and Sal was just like, what? Theo? (laughs) (laughs) And she was like, yeah, it doesn't really fit. (laughs) No, not, not at all. But that actually leads me to this other interesting thing that I thought of whenever Sal is kind of reminiscing about their family and their siblings, and they have that memory of picking their name, Salad. Oh, yeah. I was so fascinated by the idea that in Nacia, children are allowed to pick their own names. Yeah, when they hit a certain age, yeah. Yeah, and they had that whole ceremony where they wrote their name on a piece of paper and fed it to the fire as like an offering to the lady so the lady would recognize them. I love that. And I, I really hope you get more flashbacks like that because I'm so interested in Sal's past and like I want to learn more about Nacia, this, this country that was like obliterated. That also inspired some of my research. Oh yeah? What'd you research? So I researched naming laws. Okay. Just like different countries' views on on how you pick a baby's name and the types of names that are allowed and that aren't allowed. Okay, I'm fascinated. Please tell me more. It's fascinating, but it's also kind of terrible. Okay. So at first I was started researching, um, or I just started looking up, you know, parents who let their children pick their own names because that, that is something that parents are starting to do. Like they'll um, leave a, they'll put like a placeholder name in the birth certificate and then when the child gets to a certain age, they'll allow them to pick their own name. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting because there are some people who are on, who think like, oh, that's a really good idea to like empower your child and prevent them from growing up with a name they may hate. But other people, like other psychologists were saying that, you know, if a child doesn't have a proper name or if they know that they can change it or that it's just a placeholder name, they can feel like they don't have an identity Hmm. and it can lead to some psychological problems. I was going to ask, like, what is the age when you do that? Because I could also imagine just like, you know, not being responsible enough to choose Sure. You know, it's a like, hard thing to do. Being like, oh, yeah, Poopy Pants is a funny name and I want right. that to be my name or something. I don't know, just like something random. I, I mean, totally. And like, I think it can be confusing too because it, I think not only would you question your own identity, but you would question your parents' ability to make decisions for you. Like, I think it would. Oh, yeah. Like, undermine trust your trust in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually know someone who moved to the United States. I don't know them personally, but it's like a friend of a friend. He moved to the States when he was really little and his parents wanted him to have a more Americanized name. So mm-hmm. they said, they were like, we don't know what names are popular here. So they allowed him to pick whatever name he wanted. And he really liked Sesame Street. So he picked Bert as his name, <laughs> which is like, that's a great name. Like it could have been a lot worse, but. But also just the reasoning is just kind of funny. Yeah. It's like, oh, I watched Sesame Street. Well, I just read The Girl with Seven Names. It's about this woman who escaped from North Korea. Oh, gosh. And, like, part of her story is basically when she's, like, hiding her identity or whatever, she's, like, adopting new names at different points in her life and in different Mm -hmm. phases of her life, but in part for, like, protection, like, so that she won't be sent back to North Korea and stuff. But um, it's crazy because most of her name changes happen when she's, like, on her own. It's her choice. She's in her 20s and stuff like that and she's still like the effect it has on her sense of identity and it's more than just the name because obviously she's like abandoning part of her past and you know there's all this complicated stuff with what what she grew up thinking in North Korea versus what she's being exposed to outside of North Korea and all this stuff so it's not just because of the name but there is so much that's tied into that sense of identity so I can only imagine that it could have some negative impacts on the child to not have a name. Mm -hmm. And then I was so then I was researching naming laws in different countries and I would say 
say the United States has by far the most uh, permissible laws. Like, basically, we don't have any restrictions. I mean, mm-hmm. we do, but they vary by state. And a lot of them are imposed just for practical purposes. So, like, there are some states that limit the number of characters in a name just because software that's used for record keeping can only handle hmm. so many characters. <laughs> Is that in your total name or in, like, a first name? Um, I think t- it must be total name. Okay. Um, some states ban the use of numerals or pictograms. Only a few states ban the use of obscenities as, as names. And some states, like Kentucky, have absolutely no naming laws whatsoever. But That's so some, funny. Yeah. Like, I guess, I feel like mixed about it. Because part of me is like, why should they tell you what to name your kid? And the other part of me is kind of like... But also there are some things that maybe we shouldn't be allowed to name our kids. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of countries have um, the restriction that it can't can't be something that's offensive or um, would be against the best interest of the child, which is Mm -hmm. also, like, I would say very subjective. So, like, what some people consider obscene, what would be something that would, like, hinder a child in life to have as a name. Mm-hmm. But get this, this blew my mind. So in Denmark, Finland, and Germany, your name that you pick has to be indicative of a gender. Like that's a rule. It's a rule. And you can't use a name for a girl that's primarily used for a boy. So how do they judge that? I know. I have no idea. And it, it was shocking to me. That is shocking to me. Because like, I feel they- like also those are even like, like they're just popular names. Like the the girl names that were originally male names are like very popular. Exactly. Like that's that's huge in in the states. Like mm-hmm. girls names for boys and boys names for girls is like a huge tr- trend, not to mention like, you know, gender is becoming a lot more fluid and like people are starting exactly, to accept yeah. that. And just like how limiting to to have to name your baby according to its gender. I just think that's I think it's absurd and ridiculous. Well then, and also like hypothetically, if you have, like, what if you were naming it after your grandmother, but your grandmother had a name that was, so like in your mind, it's still a girl name for a girl, but in the mind of the state, it's a boy name and not a, like there's also like even, I don't know. It just seems really like arbitrary also. I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm curious too, because I don't know that many German or den- or like Finnish That's names, true. so yeah. maybe there are like very strict binary names that are just very commonplace. You know, I think there's maybe not as lot of creativity as there is in the states. Hmm. This is interesting too. So in Iceland, Hungary, Denmark, Azerbaijan, Portugal, and Saudi Arabia, you must pick a name off of a pre-approved list. How long is the list? It depends on the country. So in Denmark, there's, or no, in Iceland, they said there's 1,800 names for boys and, and 1,800 for girls, I think, or something along those lines, which like doesn't seem that much to me. <laughs> it doesn't. And also, I don't understand the point of some of these rules. I don't either. I mean, some of them are super interesting. So, okay, in China, there was a name, there was a law that said you cannot use, you cannot name your child the same name as the reigning emperor. So that was during Imperial China. Hmm. This is interesting too, though. So the Chinese language has over 70,000 characters, but only a fraction of those are represented on computers. So children's names are limited to characters that are machine-readable. Hmm. So there's And like I guess a- that at least has a practical reason. It's not like a great reason, but at least right. that like... I can understand the logic behind it. In Finland, you can assign, you cannot assign a name to a child if it's already the name of their sibling, which that's the only country that has that rule, which I thought was kind of funny. That's actually, that also seems kind of like a smart, like at least I can like understand, like that could get really confusing. Um, In Malaysia, you're not allowed to name your child after um, numbers, colors, vegetables, fruits, vulgarities, or equipment. Again, I'm not saying those are good names, but I don't understand why you can't for most of that stuff. Like, colors. We have so many color names. And I like... know. And they're beautiful names, like Violet. Yeah. I thought this was interesting. Okay, in New Zealand, you're not allowed to name your child something that might cause offense to them, or if it resembles an official title or rank. So, hmm. and, and with all of these, like, there are rules. You can still try to name your child whatever you want, but you have to submit it 
as an appeal, and usually there's a fee associated with that. So they said in New Zealand, the most commonly rejected name was Justice. Hmm. And, and uh, that's a title for a judge in New Zealand. So Justice was rejected, which like that seems like a very, sta- I don't know, it seems like just a very normal name. Like, yeah, I don't know. May- well, and again, I think some, you know, what makes a name normal or not is just like yeah. how often you hear it to some extent or, you know, how or how how often you hear it as a name versus another word. Like to me, like chair seems like a really dumb name for someone. But like if you've never, if you're like new to English or something, maybe you think, oh, that's a beautiful name. I like the way it sounds. I want to name my kid chair or something. You know, I mean, like, I don't know. It's just like, I feel like it's so, I don't know. It could be so many different things. Or like even some colors, like some colors, you know, Scarlet. Beautiful name. In the last book we read, beautiful name. Also, a lot of people like know that that's a color. I feel like there's also some like kind of, obscure colors that people almost never use as a color yeah but like yeah. technically as a color name I don't know if that makes sense but I just thought that was so fascinating that you know these these countries had like such restriction on what you name your kid I'm so curious where it started from and then it's also real. sometimes I'm like why do you have to make that a rule like what like what are parents doing if they're naming their kids expletives or whatever it's like wh- what <laughs> yeah I mean I agree that it can go a little bit far but also like and that's definitely an extreme case, but also like it's our job to kind of look at people's names and say that can be a name and we just get over it, you know? Yep. 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 So Yeah, I had no idea. I it's actually kinda interesting. I don't feel like the US usually taps a lot of even though it's like the greatest country on earth according to some people or whatever, it doesn't yeah. tap a lot of lists in terms of things like I'm kinda surprised that we're higher than some of those other countries in terms of freedom for something like that. I'm not really because of like think about freedom of speech and like we're we have so many people from all backgrounds and walks of life and you know so I guess just... that might have been the wrong way to say it but I'm like kind of surprised that some especially some of the countries that had some of those restrictions like the first one you were saying where you had to have a gender specific name or whatever mm-hmm. what were those countries I feel like some of those are pretty progressive countries but maybe I don't know enough about I know Denmark Finland and Germany yeah, like, I don't think I would have been like, oh, well, obviously, they're kind of behind the times in terms yeah. of naming. Like, some of them, like, I don't know, some of the ones you were listing with, like, a limited number of names or countries that were more recently, like, you know, uh, dictatorship or whatever. I mm-hmm. sort of get, like, it might be slower to change, but I don't know. That just kind of shocked me. Yeah, I was surprised, too, but also kind of fascinating. It is fascinating. Yeah. What do you research? So, Okay. I surprisingly looked up something and ended up somewhere completely different, which is no very way. unusual. When have you ever uh, done that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when we realized that Demas was also Nasian, is that how you say it? Yeah. Nasian, I was thinking about how we originally thought Sal might be the last remaining survivor of their nation, country, whatever we call it. Mm. And so I was trying to look up the last survivors of things. So I actually found this kind of cool list on Wikipedia of the last survivors of various historical events. So some of them are just kind of like, it's interesting to like, think about like, we have like the last survivor of the Donner Party was Margaret Isabella Breen McMahon, who died at age 89, or the last witness present at Ford's Theater during the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln was Samuel J. Seymour, and he lived to age 97, or like there's just so many things, like the last person who competed in the 1900 Summer Olympics died at age 104 in 1979, and just like the list is kind of crazy, and then I... From there, I, well, I also looked up the last speaker of certain languages, but the problem was I didn't know most of these languages, except oh, okay. Scottish Gaelic, Galwegian, was last spoken, and this this is considered someone like a native speaker. Okay. So it's not that like no one knows the language anymore, it's like someone who's fluent native speaking of this language. So the last person known was Margaret McMurray, who died in 1760, okay. and the last known speaker of Cornish, who was the last monoglot speaker, aka that was their only language, was Cheston Merchant in 1676. But then there were a ton of other things on this list for Cornish, because I guess there's like all these, there's like the last person who was fluent in Cornish, but also spoke English, and there's the last person who was fluent, I don't know, all kinds of things. That'd be so so lonely. 
If you knew you were the last, I mean, you probably don't know that you're the last speaker, but like, or I don't know, maybe you do, but like, that seems like that would be so lonely to be like the last of your kind. Well, if you don't speak another language, you'd have to know you were the last one, wouldn't you? Because who else would you talk to? Yeah, that's true. I mean, hopefully you speak some other language so you can at least talk to someone, but like... (laughs) That is just sad. It was just kind of weird to think, like, I mean, I guess it's not crazy to be like, oh, someone has a list of everyone who was at this event or or in this Olympic or, you know, in this battle or whatever, and that we can then see who the oldest one is. But, like, just the number of things that ended up on this list of the last survivor, I'm like, oh, I could be the last survivor of something someday if I live a decent amount of time. Ooh, what do we want to be the last survivor of? Well, I don't really want to be the last survivor of anything because I don't want to really outlive everybody. But it was just kind of interesting to think about. Like, it was like the last... The last descendant of Queen Victoria born during her lifetime or the last known subject of Queen Victoria. Like, it's just kind of funny, some of the stuff that's on this list. The last witness to the eruption of Mount Pelee, the last laureate of the first Nobel Prize ceremony. Okay. Just like, it's just funny, like, everything that ends up on this list. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I guess technically you could be, like, if you get a small enough group and everyone else has already died, you could be the last whatever something that you all did together, but, um... I'm trying, no, I I can't think of anything that I was like, I mean, pick last at gym class, does that count? (laughs) (laughs) So then, I don't really know how I went from that to this, to be completely honest. But I was looking up Last Survivor, and I ended up just reading Miraculous Survival Stories. Okay. (laughs) Which I feel like we've kind of talked about some of these before, so I'll try and pick the ones that we haven't. But this one I thought was fascinating for some reason. So there was this guy, Harrison Okini, and he was a cook on a Chevron service tugboat. And, you know, his life was great. He was (laughs) getting married in a few days. He was gainfully employed. He was just a happy-go-lucky guy. And this was his last mission for a while. And... Um, This is 2013, May 26th. He got up to use the bathroom, and suddenly the ship was hit by something that was later described as a sudden ocean swell. And I guess the tugboat capsized and plummeted 100 feet below the surface. Whoa! And, like, everyone else died. He was trapped there wearing nothing but his boxers, and he, (laughs) and, like, the ship is filling up with really cold water, and he's, like, walking around. I guess he found a Coca-Cola and a few tools, and he, like, set himself up in the corner of the ship where there ended up being a four-foot air pocket under the Mm. surface. So he used different mattresses and stuff to, like, try and soak up the cold water and stay dry. But he heard sharks and barracudas swimming Mm. around, and they, like, were eating the other people on the boat. And his skin was getting raw from the salt water and all of this stuff. And it should have been, like, you would think that that amount of air would run out. Because he was trapped there for yeah. 62 hours. What? Whoa, wait. How was he staying afloat? Was he just like... So he was just in this four foot part that was like trapped in the boat underwater but had an air pocket. Oh, and I guess okay. because it was so far underwater, the atmospheric pressure made it denser. So it <clears throat> had a lot more oxygen than it like normally would have. And the cold water somehow, I don't know if this is true science, but it says the cold water was helping to absorb the carbon dioxide so it didn't get to like toxic levels. Oh my god. So basically two hours and a four foot space. <gasps> yeah. Eventually and he's just in his boxers underwater. Well, everyone else is being eaten by sharks. So eventually this recovery team came out and they like just sort of assumed that everyone was dead because why wouldn't they be? But I guess he heard them coming and so he started pounding on the wall with a hammer and they rescued him and he had to spend a couple days in a decompression chamber and then he was good as new. What what year was this again? Uh, This was 2013. Oh my goodness. But they also say like like I am a diver and you basically aren't supposed to stay at that depth for very long either. Like it can only be safely di- dived uh, for like 20 minutes at a time. So it's like it's like just this kind of crazy story. So then I also read about this man who his name is Matt Suter and in 2006 he was 19 living in Missouri hanging out in his grandma's trailer home and the weather was acting up so he decided to stand on the sofa to close the window but I guess 
right at that moment, like a twister hit or something. I don't know exactly. So he described, he said the floor of the trailer started moving like jello and the doors were torn from their hinges and like the furniture was flying everywhere. And, you know, he kind of realized. The Wizard of Oz right now. I know I should have been. It's like the wind began to blow. <laughs> the wind began to twitch. And suddenly, yep. Uh, that's one of my favorite movies. But uh, yeah, and again, for some reason, I don't know if it's just this article I was reading. He also was only in his underpants. Um, but <laughs> he was sucked through into the tornado and somehow he survived this. When he regained consciousness, oh he was God. four football fields away. What? And he like basically wasn't hurt. So it's he had massively drunk. Him. It doesn't say that. But I... he survived a 150 mile per hour ride with oh. basically no injuries, landed a quarter mile away <gasps> over a barbed wire fence. All kinds of I've stuff. read that, like, if you are intoxicated and something like that happens, it actually... Because you don't, like... Yeah. You're not tensed up, yeah, so you don't get I injured. think he passed out, okay. so when he landed, Good. he probably wasn't. But I guess also in 1955, a nine-year-old girl miraculously survived a 1,000-foot tornado ride. 1,000 feet? And, and she was on her pony, I think. That was... <gasps> did I didn't read that. Did the pony detail. survive? Um, I didn't read that part. So let's say yes, because okay. it's a happier story, but that's not fact. Could be, but it's... Why are you riding your pony during a tornado? Well, tornadoes, you don't like... It's not like a hurricane where you know it's coming for days, or like a... Like, tornadoes can just kind of hit all of a sudden. Granted, I don't know too much about tornadoes, so <laughs> you're probably right. Okay, so then there's there's this guy, Norman Olastad Sr., was this mm-hmm. adrenaline junkie crazy guy, and he had a son, Norman Olastad Jr., and... Since he loved adrenaline stuff, he taught his kid all kinds of stuff. So I guess he used to do stuff where he'd surf when his kid was, like, less than a year old on his back. And he was doing, like, crazy skiing at age four and, like, all kinds of stuff. So this is, you know, he kind of, like, has been trained from a young age Mm -hmm. to be an adrenaline junkie. And uh, this is just, like, a typical afternoon, I guess, in the Olestead house. But (laughs) they decided to fly. This is 1979 in February. The younger son is 11 at the time and his father was flying to Big Bear Mountain and their Cessna was caught in a blizzard and crashed into the mountains at 8,600 feet. Oh my god. His dad died instantly and the pilot was killed instantly but Olastad's girlfriend Sandra also survived but she dislocated her shoulder and had a busted head. So the rescue helicopters flew over them and they didn't know what to do and they also like again this was just like a normal day they didn't have any like supplies with them they didn't even have a pair of gloves they said. So it was a crazy steep mountainside but this 11 year old kid decided that the only choice was to get down with Sandra. So he's carry dragging the injured Sandra with him and he's like going down like just an inch at a time but for some reason or somehow Sandra lost her grip and fell in front of him again yes so she died oh no and he just had to keep going so he was like hanging on by his fingernails at one point and eventually made his way all the way down and he at one point did when he found some trees he turned them into skis or used his sneakers as skis and some tree branches as poles but it took him nine hours to get down Oh my god. And you just saw all these people die in front of you. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And then I just think. like the survival instinct that you have to have is I mean And it's, some of it's luck, it's I think. I mean like yeah. I think it's I think it's both a little bit. But so this is there was a mega tsunami in nineteen fifty eight that was taller than the Empire State Building. <gasps> so on July 9th, nineteen fifty eight, I guess there was a rock slide that dropped thirty point six million cubic meters of rock into Alaska's Litio Bay. And it created a wave that was roughly 1,720 feet high and like destroyed everything in its path. And there was this guy, Howard Ulrich, and his eight year old son, Sonny, who were just out on a nice father son boat trip. And they said it sounded like an atomic explosion. And all of a sudden, they see this giant mega tsunami approaching them. And I guess the dad threw his kid a life preserver and said, Start praying. But, uh... Can you imagine being that eight-year-old? I know, right? And, but for some reason, they're still not really sure why, they, their boat ended up on top of the Titanic wave, so they were, like... Riding it. Surfing it, yeah. And oh another God. survivor estimated it was close to 600 miles per hour. What? And they rode on it for 25 or 30 minutes until things calmed down. How, how can you travel that fast without passing out? 
I have no idea. But also, there's just a picture of them talking about it, and they're, like, drinking coffee. They look so, like, oh, just a day out on the mega tsunami. No. I would be, I, I don't even know what I would do in that situation. Like, I mean, what can you do? I would grab the life preserver yeah, and pray. I think move. that was the best response. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and then there were these six guys, Colonel Sidney Bruce, Lieutenant Colonel Frank P. Ball, Major Norman Bodinger, and John Hughes. Uh, or Corporal Don Luttrell and George Yushitaki, who's a cameraman, mm. who they voluntarily stood under an atomic bomb. No. So there's this video, and it's five men who are just, like, standing in the desert, and there's, you know, the Ground Zero Population 5 sign next to them, and two planes fly over and launch a nuclear missile that detonates directly above their head. What were they trying to prove? They just are, like, standing there, and the it was like a publicity stunt, or... I don't know if that's the right word, but basically they were trying to convince the people were trying to assure the American public that nuclear radiation wasn't a big problem and that air to air nukes were probably relatively harmless to people standing underneath them. So, yeah, the cameraman, all he had was a baseball cap like and they volunteered to do this. It was at least I think at least the five guys volunteered. I don't know if the cameraman volunteered. That was a little bit unclear. They paid him a lot. Yeah, I don't know how much they got paid either. So, and apparently, you know, they're being told, like, it's not a big deal. And they all lived long, full lives. And <laughs> at the time of this article, two of them were still alive. But this article is from 2013. And but they did cancer? all get cancer. Okay, I was going to Every say. single one of them did have cancer. Whoa. But that could be a coincidence. Who knows? Although I just read um, this memoir about... Rocky Flats in Colorado. Have I told you about this? Mm-mm. It was considered the most contaminated site in the U.S. for a long time. It's like right outside of Denver, basically. And it was about, I just read this memoir about it and I like had no idea that that was going on so close to civilization and in our country. And yeah, it's like Love Canal or something. Hidden so much. It's like crazy. Yeah. But yeah, so I was just reading about survival stories. Oh, I love the survival stories. That's like Oh, man. I I just find stories like that so fascinating to, like, hear about instances where humans just keep going, even though they have, like, by all extent of the imagination, they should have perished, and they just keep pushing on, and they somehow make it. Like, there's just something so amazing about that. And, like... Well, and I mean, you know, the other story is, like, you know, the guy who amputated his own hand. That story always gets me, and, like, I read about Shackleton again and Mm -hmm. stuff. It's just, like, there are so many crazy stories of, again, half luck, half pure determination. And knowing what to do. Half... Yeah, I, it's just crazy. That The one about the guy who was 100 feet down and <sighs> spent 63 hours in his boxers in the cold water is, like, fascinating to me still. Oh, he did vow never to go to sea again, by the way. I don't blame him. I do not blame him at all. <laughs> but I always think of, like, stories like that. Like, I don't know why my brain always goes here, but you know how you um, hear stories of, like, the Guinness Book of World Record for treading water or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, I believe that that person tread water for that long, but, like, how long, if someone's, like, life was at stake, like, how long could they actually do it? Like, could they beat that? You know, I always, my mind always goes So do you think that. we should raise the stakes for uh, the, these measurement things and... Of the Guinness Book of World Records? Threaten their, yeah, threaten their lives while they're competing and see how far they can really go. I mean, Maybe, because I'm like, if your life's not at stake, I mean, I'm sure there's a point where you're like, okay, I can't go anymore and get me out of here. But like, if it's literally like a live or die situation, I bet you could tread water for a lot longer than four hours. <laughs> I don't know what the true world record is. Yes and no, I would think though. I would think you also have to be the right kind of person because I think a lot of, like you said, there's there's also just like the sheer determination thing. And yeah, I don't think every personality true. or person has that. Good point. Yeah. And just for fun, I'm go- and because we were talking about the Wizard of Oz earlier, okay. this is my last last survivor fact for you. So <laughs> Jerry Marin was the ala- was the last adult Munchkin of the 1939 oh, film The Wizard man. of Oz and last surviving cast member with a speaking or singing role, and he died in May 2018 at age 98. Oh. But again, like this, it's just kind of funny to me that we even like track that and have it on the list somewhere. Yeah. Like, who's like, oh, I wonder who the last... I wonder if all the ca- uh, the cast members are still alive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm exhausted from reading those stories. I don't blame I you, like yeah. <laughs> been all over the place now. We only have half a book left. I know. And I still have so much more that I want to learn. I really want my top... Okay. What's your top mm-hmm. top thing that you want to learn? We only get to pick one. 
Hmm. Um, I don't know. That's a really good question. I can't, how do I, I guess I, I really want to know what Maude is up to. That's like my number one. Okay. Mine is I want to know more about Sal's past. That's fair. That was going to be mine, but then I, I love Maude. I told you that I think the yeah. first half of the first book, she's my favorite character, I think. But I will also say I really like the assassin competition. Yeah. But I think I'm liking this book even more. I think I am too. I really, I'm just, I really like emerald emerald i think is like probably my favorite character right now and i love that we're learning more about her and like her just all about her character Mm -hmm. it's cool to because she's the oldest or she's the only original left hand left right yeah Mm -hmm. and she's the only one who fought the shadows and i just find her really really fascinating i like her too and i again i kind of really thought that i i because the assassin competition was such a kind of cool thing that's like totally right up my alley so Mm -hmm. i sort of thought with that gone I'd like the book, but I wouldn't love the book. But I think I'm liking it more. I don't yeah. know if it's just, I don't know. And I even, I'm, I also want to know more about, well, I want to know what's going on with the ears. Why oh. are we taking kids' ears? Oh, that's true. I really want, I really want to find out that. Maybe I'll switch mine to that. Because that is like so horrific. And like, what are they up to? What are they doing? Why? Why children? There's so many questions. And I really hope so we get questions. answers. But I guess, to be fair, I think we have to get an answer to that, at least to yeah. some extent. Whereas we may or may not get more of Sal's backstory. Like, hopefully we do, but that's that's more of a good ask. Yeah. Because it's not guaranteed. And also, like, what... I want to know what happened between um, Lena and Caldera. Because don't we learn that they were lovers? And, like, I think that's why she betrayed him. But, like, I want to know more about, like, what went down between them. Riparian and, and Caldera. Yeah. I don't... I don't even... I don't even know. But also... I also just... There's so many bad people. Yeah. And, and I love a good <laughs> revenge story. I really do. I do, too. I love it. Yeah. Well, and I like how it's not... I also like that Sal is questioning their, like... Um, or, I guess, Emerald was questioning Sal's... Are you just doing this for revenge or are you... Like... They're yeah. sort of, they're, they're still like, are we human? You know, there's this line of like, how do we not become monsters even though we're killing people and like kind of dealing with that sort of still human aspect of this terrible situation they're in and like trying to carry the burden for the rest of the world and like prepare, pave the way for the future and stuff like that. I don't know. I think I, there's a lot of cool stuff that they're dealing with in this book. Yeah, Emerald is the one who says, um, she, she has like a really good way of putting it. She's like, we, we are killers who keep the worst killers at bay. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was like a good way to to frame what the left hand really is. And she was the one who was challenging Sal to be like, "Why are you doing this? Yeah. Right? Like you you need to think about it." Oh, I also really liked when the pharmacist lady I forget her name again Isadora uh, Isadora <laughs> is talking to Sal basically about her or when well her PTSD and Sal's PTSD and Ruby's like basically addressing the fact that multiple people who've survived these horrible things that have happened you know they don't come out unaffected by it right and it's okay to like ask for help or get help or figure out a way to handle it and i i thought that was really real and refreshing too agreed like being an assassin doesn't mean that you're invincible it means that Mm -hmm. you can handle the job but it doesn't mean that you're completely immune to it yep yeah agreed (sighs) um do you have a joke for me to lighten things up i do so if anyone else listens to Sirius XM radio, the highway in the mornings, you may have heard this joke, but I cracked up on my way to work. Okay. So this is a joke about a potato family. Okay. okay. The potato family is sitting down for dinner, right? <laughs> and it's mother potato and father potato and three daughter potatoes. So partway through the meal, the eldest potato daughter says, mother potato, I have an announcement to make. And the mom's like, well, obviously you're super excited. Like what's, what's the news? What's the news? And the oldest daughter is, you know, kind of nervous, but also excited. And they're like, well, I'm going to get married. And everyone is like, oh my goodness, that's so exciting. You know, what's, who are you going to marry? Tell us more. And she says, I'm marrying a russet. And the mother is so proud. A russet. It's a fine (laughs) potato. That's great. So then the middle daughter is like, well, mom and dad, I I also have an announcement. And they're like, oh yeah, what, what could that be? And she says, I'm also getting married. And they're like, you too? That's, you know, twice as good of news. Like, who are you marrying? This is so great. And she goes, I'm marrying in Idaho. And they're like, oh, in Idaho, that's a really good potato. And so everyone's, you know, talking about the future and very excited. And then the youngest potato interrupts too. And they're like, mom, um, I also, you know, have some news. And the mother potato just like, oh, yeah, what's your news? And the youngest potato, kind of a similar 
expression is like, I don't know if this will shock you or not, but I'm also getting married. And Mother Potato is like, oh my goodness, all my daughters are getting married. This is the greatest news. Who are you marrying? And the youngest daughter responds with, I'm marrying Peter Jennings. And the Mother Potato scowls a little bit and is just like, Peter Jennings? But he's just a commentator. (laughs) Oh my god. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's the joke for today. Enjoy. (laughs) That's amazing. I love jokes that have like a really big setup and then like a really quick payoff. I was so nervous I was going to accidentally ruin it. Oh my god. When when they have a big setup. Yeah. Those are my favorite jokes, too. I love story uh, jokes, I will, but usually I ruin them. I will never tell this story joke because it is an epic story joke, but my friend Ellen has this joke that her family always tells around the campfire, and it is like, it's just like an inside family joke that someone always gets up and tells, and I'm not even kidding you. It takes like a solid 15 minutes to tell this joke, and there's- Oh my goodness. It's so hard to tell because it's at one point you have to make up limericks or like rhymes or something like that. And you have to like make them up on the spot. It is the most complicated joke I've ever heard in my entire life, but it never ceases to make me just like laugh so freaking hard. Just because it's like, it's like a 15 minute joke. Okay, we need to get that on recording (laughs) and post it on like April Fool's next year. Something like appropriately funny because that I really want to hear it too. I'll tell it to you next time you're in town and we have like a solid 15 minutes without interruption because <laughs> it's pretty great. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. Okay. Okay. If you have story jokes for us or crazy survival stories or uh, predictions about what's going on in this Ruin of Stars book, you can reach out to us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. And we're also on Instagram and Facebook at mnktalkya. And I was going to say something. Oh, and next week we are going to come up with a fan name. Oh, yeah. Which I'll start thinking about now. And also, we I don't know if we mentioned this in our last episode, but it's our 100th episode. Like, we just passed it. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say, well done. I'm proud of us. Congratulations. We've done it. Yes. <laughs> 100 episodes. That's like full episodes too, right? Like those yeah, are book episodes. Yeah, yeah. That mm-hmm. doesn't count like our super fan Sundays or um, like our recaps or blooper reels or anything like that. 100 yeah. Who episodes. would have thought back in the day, three years ago, Oof. that we'd ever get here? Not me. <laughs> here's, to here's to 100 more. <laughs> done. Challenge accepted. All right. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelphy, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.